Will you pray with me before we look to God's word? Father in heaven, as we just sang, your spirit gave us life. And he did it through opening your word to us. In Psalm 32, you promised to instruct us and teach us in the way we should go. And you've given a wonderful gift to us in your word. And so we ask that through it, as we open it up and hear from it, you might speak directly to us. Change us into people who love more earnestly what you love, who are more like you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you know that everything we know about the very first Thanksgiving comes from just three sentences of historical evidence? That's right. A mere 115 words provide the foundation for what is the most popular, what is the most celebrated national holiday in our country. The three sentences are found in a letter from 1621 penned by a young man named Edward Winslow, who was one of Governor Bradford's young assistants, one of his interns, really. He was writing to a group of London merchants, updating them on the the status, the progress of the pilgrims in the New World. You want to hear it? It'll only take a second. Our harvest being gotten in, our governor sent four men on fowling. That means hunting birds. That so we might, after a more special manner, rejoice together after we had gathered the fruit of our labors. They four in one day killed as much fowl as, with a little help beside, served the company almost an entire week. You think, where is this going? We only have one more sentence to go. At which time, amongst other recreations, we exercised our arms, many of the Indians coming amongst us, and among the rest, their great king Massasoit, with some ninety men, whom for three days we entertained and feasted. And they went out and killed five deer, which they brought to the plantation, plantation and bestowed on our governor and upon the captain and others. I'm still waiting for the turkey to show up, aren't you? Winslow mentions fowl, but we have no idea what kind of fowl this was. It could be turkey, it could be duck, it could be geese, it could be crow. And where's the cranberry sauce? I was told when I tried it for the first time that I had to try it because it was a pilgrim tradition. And furthermore, Winslow makes no mention of the month of November. He simply says uh, that the feast took place after the harvest, which in Massachusetts, Tullus has helped me out, September, October. There's nothing growing there right now. Well, Winslow seems to provide us with more questions than answers about the very first Thanksgiving. And while our scripture passage for this morning is even shorter than the one we just read, just heard from, 85 words to be exact, fortunately, it is much clearer about what our thanksgiving is to be like. Our thanksgiving, our continual thanksgiving, is to be an act of worship. Let me invite you to turn with me to Psalm 100, which can be found on page 500 
in the black hardcover Bibles we've provided for you. Psalm 100, page 500. And notice that just under the psalm title is a second title, a historical title, which labels this psalm as a psalm for giving thanks. How fitting. Let's give our attention to what the psalmist says. Listen to God's word. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and His faithfulness to all generations. This is God's Word. Well, what is God God saying to us? God is calling us to come into his holy presence and worship him with thanksgiving and praise. And the psalmist is repetitive on this point. There are five verses in this psalm. As you can see, verses one through three, uh, sorry, in verses one and two, the psalmist invites us to come and worship. And then in verse three, he tells us why we should come and worship. And then in verse 4, the psalmist starts all over again. He invites us again to come and worship, enter his gates with thanksgiving. And then in verse 5, he tells us why we should come and worship. So, two parts to this psalm, two points to this sermon. First, in verses 1 through 3, we see that God is calling us and all people everywhere to worship him. God is calling us and all people everywhere to worship him. Notice in verse 1 how the psalmist wastes no time in inviting us to worship the Lord. He cries out, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Now we often use this phrase to encourage some of our more uh, tone-deaf brothers and sisters to really sing out during the worship service. Maybe you've said that. Maybe you've heard that before. But the psalmist has in mind something even more radical. Those four words that you and I see at the beginning of the psalm, make a joyful noise, actually compose just one word in the original Hebrew. It's ruah. You want to know what it means? Shout! Shout to the Lord! Specifically, it's a victorious shout. It's a shout that a crowd might give to a king returning from winning a battle. And the psalmist tells us that worship consists of shouting to the Lord. (laughs) Can you imagine if we did that? Worship consists of shouting. It's exuberant. It's boisterous. It's fanfare. And do you see whom the psalmist is addressing? He's not just talking to the people of Israel. He says, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. All the peoples of the earth. 
Jew and Gentile, are to shout to the Lord, the God of Israel, as their king. Everyone is invited to worship the Lord, including you and me. What is our worship to be like? What's it to look like? The psalmist continues to tell us in verse 2, we are to serve the Lord with gladness. With gladness. William Booth said it well. Gloomy Christianity is the devil's religion. Friends, we do well to be reverent in our worship, but may it never be said that Cross Point Baptist Church is a gloomy, sullen people. Our worship is to be cheerful, happy. Smiling and laughter are encouraged. But let me be clear. Serving the Lord with gladness does not mean that you are forbidden to ever experience brokenness or sadness or despair. There will almost certainly be times in our lives when we come into this place and we are feeling gloomy. But when that happens and you come to gather with us, our worship should lift you up. It should be medicine to your soul. It should make your heart glad again. It should heal you. Church family, don't you want to be a glad church? A glad church. How do we do that? Answer, next phrase. Don't you love it how the Bible is clear? By coming into his presence with singing. You say, I don't want to sing. Well, that's too bad. (laughs) You are in God's presence You are worshiping him according to his terms. God wants you to sing. So sing. Sing simply out of obedience if you must, but sing nonetheless. Add to the gladness. And you, in time, I think, will be glad yourself. You say, but like 50% of the songs we sing are songs I don't like. Well, that's the beauty of blended worship. It could be worse. You could dislike 100% of the songs. One of my friends back home in Kentucky, he's a music minister. He used to always say, you know that you've achieved the perfect balance of blended worship when everybody is upset about the music. The contemporary people are upset about the number of hymns we're singing. The hymn people are upset about the number of contemporary songs we're singing. But instead of being gloomy when a song is played that you don't want to sing, why not, why not view it as a time that you're giving to one of your other fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord, a time that they get to sing a song that they want to sing to the Lord. They get a time to sing a song that's special to them. And why not make it even more glad by singing along with gladness to the Lord for the sake of your brothers and sisters here? That's the point. Singing is a gift from the Lord. It lifts our spirits. It makes our hearts glad. Try being mad and whistling at the same time. It's really annoying how music does something to us. 
What better recipe for a glad worship service than to come into God's presence with singing? But worship doesn't just aim to rouse our voices and emotions. Worship is to engage our minds. You see that? Notice verse 3. Know that the Lord, He is God. We're supposed to know something. It's to be intelligent. The psalmist tells us that our worship should spring forth from hearts that are full of the knowledge of God. What should we acknowledge about God? The psalmist tells us four facts. First, as we've just read, we must acknowledge that the Lord is God. (laughs) Now, that might sound simple to us. Of course, he's God. But we need to remember that this psalm was originally addressed to all the peoples of the earth. Remember? Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. The psalmist was calling all of the surrounding nations to come and worship the Lord. But in order to worship him truly, they must turn away from their false gods. And the people of Israel, too, needed to be reminded from time to time to turn away from false gods. Recall during Elijah's day when 7,000 Israelites had not bowed the knee to Baal. Only 7,000 of them. And after the Lord had won the contest on Mount Carmel by sending down fire from heaven, emblazoning the altar, how did the people respond? I wonder if you remember. Scripture says they fell on their faces and cried out, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And we're no different today. We must remember how prone we are to replace the one true God with our own false gods. John Calvin has said, the human heart is an idol-making factory. Every one of us is, from his mother's womb, expert in inventing idols. Whether it be money, or sex, or power, or doctrinal accuracy, or even good old traditional family values. We have a knack for turning the good gifts of God into objects of worship. And the psalmist tells us that in order to worship the Lord truly, we must turn away from these false gods, these idols. We must know that the Lord alone is God. Well, what else must we acknowledge about God and our worship Continuing in verse 3, it is He who made us. We must acknowledge that God is our Creator. Acknowledging God as our Creator is becoming increasingly unpopular today. Many of our secular scientists and philosophy, philosophy professors claim to have the corner on the market when it comes to a theory of origins. Naturalistic evolution is being spoon-fed to the upcoming generation from elementary through the university level. And yet, the vast majority of these professors find the evolutionary worldview to be perfectly compatible with religion. How is that? 
Greg Graffin, who recently earned a Ph.D. from Cornell in zoology, wrote his dissertation on... You ready? These are always long. He wrote his dissertation on the intersection of evolutionary biology and theology and the various forms of compatibility. Does that make sense? Theology, biology, how can they be compatible? During the course of his research, he interviewed evolutionary biologists from 22 countries and found that 87% of them believed evolution and religion to be compatible. When Graffin asked them which traditional religious beliefs must be abandoned in order to be compatible with the evolutionary worldview, students, are you listening? These scientists responded that three things. Belief in a supernatural God must be abandoned. It's compatible, though. Belief in the human soul must be abandoned. And belief in life after death must be abandoned. In other words, for your Christian faith to be compatible with naturalistic evolution, you must abandon the most meaningful matters of human existence. No one has gone through life and not asked these questions. And they say, you can't turn to religion. We have the answers. But the psalmist tells us that our worldview affects our worship. We are to worship God as our creator. He knit us together in our mother's womb. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He chose the color of your eyes. He designed your personality. He formed your voice. He showed off his creative glory when he created you. My friend, how can you resist worshiping God as your creator? You were made to worship God. God as your creator. I forgot who said it, but someone has said the saddest moment in an atheist's life is when he is overcome with gratefulness but has no one to thank. That can't be said of us. We must worship God as our creator, know him, praise him. Third, we must acknowledge that God is our owner. The psalmist tells us it is he who made us and we are his. We are his people. Franz Dalich has said the creator is also the owner. His heart clings to his creature and the creature owes itself entirely to him. We belong to God. We are his people. We are his treasured possession. And he values each and every one of us. But God doesn't simply have ownership rights over us. He also cares for each one of us deeply. Look at how the psalmist brings verse 3 to a close. He says that we are the sheep of God's pasture. God is our shepherd. Does that sound familiar? The Lord is my shepherd. He cares for us. He provides for us. He protects us. How awesome is it that our creator, our owner, would stoop down and become our shepherd? And yet, 
the gospel tells us something even more impressive. Not only did God become our shepherd, he also became our substitute. Jesus said it himself in John 10, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. At the cross, the Lord Jesus offered himself to God as our substitute. He laid down his life for us, his life for ours. In exchange, he took our place. And it was the only way. How else could our sins have been paid for? St. Anselm in the Middle Ages put it this way. Man's debt was so great that while man alone owed it, only God could pay it. And that's exactly what he did, didn't he? He paid our debt. Every bit of it. God sent his son Jesus, fully God, fully man, to take the punishment we deserved upon himself. And now God promises that if we turn from our sins and trust in Jesus, we can be forgiven. All of our sins forgiven. Not in part, but the whole. Have you ever tasted that joy? There's nothing like it. It's God's greatest gift to humanity. Himself, his own son. Can you sing with the hymn writer, Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? And all we can do in return is simply fall down and worship. But the psalmist isn't finished. We see in verses 1 through 3 that God is calling us and all people everywhere to worship him. But now the psalmist describes even further what our worship is to be like. He tells us that our worship is to be full of thanksgiving and praise to God. Look at verse 4, where the psalmist again invites us into God's presence. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. The psalmist is inviting us to worship God in his holy temple. He tells us that the gates have been thrown wide open. The courts are ready to be filled with glad worshipers. God is hosting an open house. And we who were formerly barred from his presence have been granted access in Christ to come. We're invited into our creator's presence without fear, only gladness. And our worship is to be filled to the brim with thanksgiving, overflowing with praise. Hold nothing back. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Why? I told you the psalm was repetitive. The psalmist concludes in verse 5 by giving us three reasons why we should give thanks to God. Three reasons. First, the Lord is good. It's quite simple, really. The creator and ruler of the universe is unfathomably good. Everything you've ever enjoyed, even this morning, that first sip of fresh coffee, that warm hug from a friend, it all comes from God's bounty. It's a gift. The Lord is good. And like all good things, 
like a good homemade piece of pecan pie on Thanksgiving Day. The Lord is to be enjoyed and savored and praised. You don't just scarf down that piece of pecan pie. You appreciate it. You spend time on it. You enjoy it. Friends, the Lord is good. Won't you thank Him? Second, the Lord's steadfast love endures forever. Another reason why we should give thanks to God. The Lord's steadfast love endures forever. God's love for you, child of God, will never wear out. You will never reach the bottom of it. You will never exhaust it. God's love for you will continue for all eternity. He has bound himself to you in Christ. Aren't you thankful? And there's one more reason why we should give thanks to God. The Lord's faithfulness continues throughout all generations. What does that mean? It means that God will never break any of his promises to you, to your children, to your grandchildren, to your great-grandchildren. He will always be faithful. You can count on him now and forever. Aren't you thankful? We can trust him wholeheartedly. We can hope in him without reservation. That's how faithful he is. Friends, God has made us for worship. He has blessed us for worship. He has saved us for worship. And now he's calling us to come. His gates are open. His courts are ready. How can you refuse such an invitation? Your creator bids you to come. Your owner values your presence. Your shepherd eagerly awaits your arrival. How can you resist? Come and give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And his faithfulness continues throughout all generations. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do give you praise for your, thank, for your faithfulness, for your goodness to us.